Tom Lee is one of the great luminaries of crypto and finance Twitter. The former chief equity analyst at J.P. Morgan made headlines during the Bitcoin boom of 2017 with his calls that the cryptocurrency would soar to his price target of $25,000. Fast forward to today, Lee isn't making any more price targets on Bitcoin, but he still makes calls on the market, leading Fundstrat, a market research shop covering both equities and crypto. On this episode of The Scoop, Lee shared his thoughts on how the research business has evolved over the last two decades, why he doesn't think Bitcoin is a macro hedge, and the biggest roadblocks keeping big investors out of the market. I hope you enjoy the episode. We'd like to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Cash App. Cash App has been the number one finance app on the App Store for almost two years. It was also the first major peer-to-peer payments app to support Bitcoin, and it's still the fastest and easiest way to turn cash into crypto. Cash App now supports Bitcoin deposits in-app, so be sure to move your Bitcoin from whatever wallet you're using to Cash App. Don't have any to deposit? Cash App is also the most convenient way to instantly buy and sell Bitcoin. No more waiting five days for your ACH transfers to come through. With Cash App, you can buy Bitcoin instantly. When you're ready to take full ownership of your private keys, just use Cash App to scan an external wallet's QR code. It's really that simple. Cash App also comes with standard banking features like direct deposits and others your bank would never even consider, like Cash Card, a customizable debit card that lets you instantly save every time you use it at Lyft, Whole Foods, and places like Chick-fil-A. It's also a favorite of the block's analyst, Steven Zhang. He saves money at Chipotle every time he gets a burrito. That keeps Steven happy, that keeps the block happy, and that keeps the crypto world informed with the best news and research in the entire market. Download Cash App today from the App Store or Google Play, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for tuning in to what is a very, very special episode of The Scoop. I am joined, of course, by my co-host, Ryan Todd. First episode in a while. We're happy you're here. And then our guest, Tom Lee, managing partner and head of research at Fundstrat Global Advisors. He's a dear friend of mine and an accomplished Wall Street researcher with 25 years in the industry, known for his opine opining on on the bitcoin and crypto market but also has spent time and and most of the business that he operates is involved in traditional u.s equities and and emerging markets um he also spent time at jp morgan as a chief equity strategist from 2007 to 2014 and we're very happy to have him here to discuss things shaping both the bitcoin industry bitcoin market but as well as some other macro trends that we're noticing here at the block tom thank you so much glad to be here thank you for that intro no no worries. really nice really i worked kind. really hard on it i'm gonna have to transcribe it <laughs> and put it on our website well i literally have your website right here and i'm just ripping <laughs> off that um tom um i think an interesting place to start since we're both in similar sort of businesses right the the, the block is a research and news uh, platform. Let's, we like to use the word platform here at the block. And you guys are, you know, doing equity and crypto research. I guess my first question is, when we think about that industry, um, equity uh, research and analysis, we often 
just think about price targets and what a given stock is going to trade at. And then at Bit in the Bitcoin world, what is Bitcoin going to trade at? And you've had different um, theses around that for for past several years. Um, how, though, are they actually different? Walk us through how those two businesses, um, last time we spoke over dinner, I think you said Bitcoin's only really 10% of, of the business you guys run. How is the 90% different from the 10%? Um, yeah, it's a good question. Um, they're very different businesses. Uh, so my cumulative work experience is as primarily a fundamental research analyst. So I started off uh, covering wireless companies in 1993. And just for perspective, in 1993, there were only 34 million cell phone users. Today, there's 4.5 billion. So it's an industry that's grown by uh, about 1,000x um, since then. And, um, you know, the investment research business is really built around a couple of things. One is you have to develop, like, a thesis um, and sort of show some sort of how this tracks the true narrative, right? And um, investors, therefore, as you sort of work with a thesis, they want evidence to either support or refute your thesis. And so that's, in their minds, the edge. <clears throat> and so you become uh, their primary source. And, you know, in the institutional business, it's a pretty well-established world, you know, where there's active managers and funds and people own equities um, and their positions. And then they have research providers and consultants that help them um, understand their positioning or calibrate their own views. Crypto is uh, very different because, number one, it's n there aren't centralized organizations to deal with. So when you cover a company or you're covering a market, um, there's already information. So a company has investor relations and they publish data points like the equivalent of key performance metrics. And industries will do surveys or they'll make announcements um, or they'll push towards legislation in an organized way. And I think crypto is really more like a hive mind community. You know, there aren't, there really isn't a centralized uh, Mr. Bitcoin spokesperson and there's no Bitcoin, Bitcoin company. Yeah. And they're not publishing KPIs or, uh, you know, talking to the trading desk. So it's a very different business. And I think because of that, it actually makes traditional institutions really leery of trying to enter the market um, because it's hard for them to believe that they can come in with an edge. So is then it is it then your job to come up with some of those KPIs and present them as part of your thesis, almost giving more information or doing more of the legwork than you would with providing a thesis around, you know, Ford stock or yeah. something else? I mean, I'd say part of our business is, um, yeah, trying to bridge a lot of that. You know, trying to explain that um, if you're a traditional investor, how do you develop a thesis around crypto and still sleep at night even though you're lacking all your traditional resources? I mean, if you think about how an analyst at a hedge fund, so if we're just talking about how they make a decision, you know, they do a lot of bottoms-up work, they write up a thesis, they have a model, uh, but they calibrate all this information with either sell-side research or consultants, um, and that way they have a consensus that they can either say is wrong or right, <clears throat> and they get a lot of trading color and know where the bodies are buried and who's the holders, 
uh, based on a lot of this information and the data sets. In crypto, someone really has to believe more in the 20-year roadmap. I mean, I think that's the real basis to make a, an allocation decision, and that's going to be the most important decision uh, for a fund, right, to, to put 1% into crypto and then understand the work over the next 20 years. And so it's a very different you know, time frame process, and yes, it's, it's very different. I mean, I, I think that question could like last hours because there's a lot of differences. Sure. So what's the value add then of, of your services if it is such a long-term outlook? Why put out, I don't know the, the rate at which you're putting out reports, but if it's on a quarterly or, yeah. or monthly basis, if it is such a long-term view, why do, we, why do you need to update your clients so frequently? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So I think it has to start with how uh, traditional markets have evolved. So um, in traditional like liquid markets, so let's just take equities, which in the U.S. is $20 trillion, um, but it's $66 trillion globally. So there's, these are large markets. And to give you a sense, you know, if you're really trading markets, uh, in the U.S. there's you know, 4,000 stocks, of which the top 10 most liquid stocks in America have 20 times the trading volume of Europe. So if you wanted to say in the world, where's the easiest place to buy and sell stocks? It's America. Now, here's the interesting question. There's 4,000 stocks. So you and I would say, oh, okay, well, the stock market is therefore the cumulative price action of 4,000 different securities that are businesses that have their own you know, sensitivity to the economy, to weather, to do their demographics, right? 80% of the performance of a stock is explained by macro factors. So in other words, if you look at uh, performance of, of an active manager's portfolio, probably 70% of the performance is explained by a top-down decision, either related to monetary policy, positioning around a regime change, responding to some cyclical indicator, so it means that macro is still one of the, despite people sort of not believing that to be the case, it still mostly explains how the stock market moves. What about as it pertains to Bitcoin? Well, I think that's uh, very true, therefore, in crypto. So if I had to say, can you explain Bitcoin by some simple measurements? Believe it or not, there are some sort of simple macro things that have explained Bitcoin's price. And so we are approaching crypto research from the same lens, that we're not the team that's going to do the bottoms-up research on a project or tell you what the roadmap is for a project. I mean, that is something that we can do, um, but it's, it's a different domain expertise than what I'm trying to accomplish. So Fundstrap may publish research on projects, but that's not going to necessarily be my domain expertise. And uh, some simple things. You know, one, I think you can show really conclusively that Bitcoin is a network value asset. So measurements of, a, of adoption have explained price movements. The second is because there is uh, a proof of work um, to Bitcoin that mining has actually proven to be a pretty important sort of way to sort of set parameters around what is fair value for Bitcoin. And of course, it's actually explained because miners end up selling or hodling uh, their block rewards. And so it ends up 
providing essentially acting as a you know as a buffer or you know a rough range where bitcoin should trade so you're talking about quote unquote intrinsic value backed into by the cost of mining or yeah and i mean like the, these words are really tough because these are native digital assets um but yeah it's it's largely the concept i mean i'd say for instance most people think fang stocks are explained by their individual business models. So if, if someone will say, oh yeah, Facebook is ad sales um, and it's growth and you know, Amazon is based on its uh, you know, sales and you could you know, go through every one of these major stocks and explain their business model. But we published a report last year that showed 75% of the return of FANG stocks is explained by the growth of global internet users. So in other words, if you just did a simple network value model on FANG 10 years ago or seven years ago, and you said, this is what I think the global internet market will grow by, you got 75% of the return of the FANG stocks. So you would say the approach at Fundstrat across the composition of uh, asset classes that you do research on is, is top down, <laughs> top down uh, not bottoms up in, uh, any, in any case? So, I mean, I, so I don't know what like the generally um, accepted met, like terminology is for top-down versus bottoms-up. I would say our work is evidence-based research. So, um, see, in the world of top-down, when, when you look at traditional markets, when someone says they're top-down, they'll start with their theory that, oh, central banks drive the world. And, and so then they're truly top-down in the sense that they're only looking at a handful of things. I think Fundstrat's research approach is what we call evidence-based research. So we try to say, um, this is what historically can explain market behavior pretty well. And if it's in conflict with what we see as consensus, then we have a variant uh, call. And then that's where we try to sort of say, look, focus on these sort of factors. And then this is, if our thesis is right, then the market's going to move in this direction. So it's, you could say it's top down, but I, I would say it's really with the belief that uh, a lot of evidence and history can explain the movement of markets and that that's what we try to find and identify. And it's not always the same. It's not static. Do you think, I think a lot of people when they look at Bitcoin don't think it's reasonable that someone can come up with a fair value price or a market price that, because it's not based on anything in terms of, you know, a company is going to have these different, you know, KPIs, KPIs and such. Um, when you talk to clients, how do you convince them that there is a way that you can figure out a value for this thing and help them figure out how they can put that and connect that with their own strategies? Yeah. Um, well, you know, there's sort of like this general rule of thumb in the traditional world that you can either be try to get time or price correct. Um, Meaning, like, if you think something is worth this, then it's very difficult to put time on that time frame. Or if you're trying to say where something is in a certain time frame, it's going to be very difficult to get the price right. And I think, yeah, Bitcoin, I think that was probably our really big sort of learning adjustment last year was that if you're going to be writing about Bitcoin, you can't, you can't really get price and time correct. So it's better to either think in terms of price or time. Mm -hmm. And, but for someone to think that Bitcoin is impossible to value, 
because um, of the lack of KPIs is making a statement that is also equally true of traditional markets. You know, most people think stocks are anchored by fundamental value. And to your point earlier, most of it is driven by macro. Yes. And in fact, the majority of the value of the S&P is actually intangible. I mean, i just give you a simple stat. I think only 9% of the S&P 500s, so S&P is trading at $3,000, so technically $3,000 per share. Do you know that like $270 is the value of all the plant and equipment cash on the books? You're paying, when you buy the S&P, you're buying intangible businesses. For FANG, and it's close to 95% is intangible. So the stock market... You're buying growth as well, too, though, right? Yeah, so the idea is that in the equity world, one thing to keep in mind is that they always say it takes a whole lot of PE to offset E. So even though you see all these analysts talk about earnings forecasts, it, even in the S&P, in the last 30 years, only three of the years were explained by earnings. 27 of the last 30 years have been explained by what the PE does. And as you pointed, the PE is the future. So the stock market moves because of what you think is going to happen, not today, but like what the market thinks of the future. And it, I, I would say that's pretty much how you value any future-based asset, which is digital assets as well. So do you think it's a fool's errand to price, whether it's a stock or a cryptocurrency, with a specific time frame and a value? I think trying to combine both, yes, is difficult. So like, for instance, if you ask me, you know, what could Bitcoin be worth in the future, I could give you some numbers that are based on mining break-evens or, you know, I've seen other models used for crypto and I think those are perfectly reasonable, but the, but the one challenge is, is going to be time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's, I mean, that was something you were, it also, you know what the, um, this reminds me of is that pump meme where he's talking to the guy about, um, how Bitcoin's not based on anything. And he goes, well, neither is US dollar, but how big is your cash position? Yeah. Um, but anyway, <laughs> I just, and then the, uh, the glasses, the glasses come, come and, down and the marijuana, uh, doobie, they call it doobie. Seriously, <laughs> what do you, a joint. a joint? Yeah. I mean, and you know, you can see it, uh, <laughs> deal with it. <laughs> you know, like when you see a stock, uh, collapse, like a business collapse, the, the speed at which it happens is, is breathtaking. So it proves that someone would say, oh, 12 months ago, this company was worth X, and then the next day it's down 90%. It just shows you stocks are not grounded by fundamentals, even though people think, well, I can buy it, I can go to the store, visit. It's the value of an equity or of any asset is based on the future. So n now you're completely off the Bitcoin price target uh, game. That addiction? The addiction, yeah. I'm a reformed price targeter. <laughs> what do you think was the aha moment for that? You kind of alluded to it before, but was there a specific, was it a specific Twitter troll maybe or a No, I think a specific it's, um, moment? I think that, and how does it feel to be like the Bitcoin 25,000 guy and then just see the market utterly collapse? getting distracted by someone at the, getting distracted by the gym. Yeah. Um, well, I think that if I had to think about what I learned in 2018, there 
is a lot of short-term dynamics that involve psychology, uh, trading, um, buyer strikes, you know, sort of dynamics that would someone would say doesn't affect the future value of something, but it has an impact on the short term, that they're really, they're unforecastable. It, it's, there's an, there's a, an inability to include that into a forecast. And so I think to us, that's why we won't say what so we what think. What was Bitcoin, it about Bitcoin in 2018 that was unforecastable and that you weren't able to capture in your well, I think research? that, yeah, I, I'd say part of it's like this thing of reflexivity, which is as Bitcoin's price was falling, um, interest in Bitcoin was declining, right? And so if you were to say, well, it's a network value asset, so you've got to look at uh, active addresses, well, that's falling with the price. Mm -hmm. um, well, then that's going to affect trading because then if you're holding Bitcoin and you're trying to get liquidity, but if the price is falling, you have illiquidity, but it's going to be pro, what you say, pro-cyclical, you know, as people sell it. So it, you know, so that's a, uh, you know, that's, something that I would say a technician would have a much better time, much better ability to sort of see that taking place. Um, that's why I think systems like DMARC uh, or Elliott Wave Counts or, you know, even people use 200 moving averages. I mean, those are actually proving to be quite useful in crypto. And I think that w that does a much better job of explaining six months, three months, maybe even 12 months for, for crypto. Do we want to move over to traditional markets and ask some questions about. I kind of want to hit on your your recent call on CNBC. I guess your new thesis around, um, and it kind of jumps out because it's definitely a contrarian take. I guess from the the Bitcoin, Bitcoin polls that we we hear every day. Um, Ad nauseum. But you came out and mentioned, I think last week, that uh, when the S and P breaks new highs, which you expect it to this year. Uh, Bitcoin will soon follow, and it, it sort of follows this idea of trendless macro. So uh, you stated that Bitcoin stalled because uh, the macro outlook stalled, um, and added that in a world without trend, Bitcoin doesn't go up. Um, and yeah, so I, th I think this is interesting because it's just a direct uh, contrast to some of the narratives that we hear on a daily basis that um, you know, trade tensions, uh, central banks being overly accommodative, printing money, devaluing currencies, world's going to end, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, can you talk through that thesis as to why you think uh, yeah. uh, Bitcoin needs to turn into a risk-on asset again? Yeah. Um, yeah, so I, I agree. I think it's an unpopular opinion. It's probably an unpopular opinion to say the, that if S&P makes a new high, that's good for Bitcoin. Because you're right, I think... Uh, people believe Bitcoin was designed as a as either a hedge or as a to supplant traditional regulated regulated systems, dollar, you know, interference by governments, which means you really need calamity or macro risk to be elevated for Bitcoin to actually perform well. And I think I I, I agree with actually that basic belief. Like I would say, hey, you know, look at what happened when Cyprus you had a crisis in Cyprus, you know, Bitcoin did well. Um, but here's evidence-based research. If I had to say Bitcoin's a macro hedge, then I would say that the evidence should mechanically show Bitcoin price does best when the S&P has a bad year. 
So let me give you the evidence. In the years when the S&P has been down since Bitcoin's inception, Bitcoin has averaged a negative 19% annual return. In the years where the S&P has been below its long-term average return, Bitcoin's average gain is 300%, which is better. So in other words, when Bitcoin's trendless, it does better than when the S&P is down. Sorry, when the S&P is trendless. Now, the thing is, what, what is Bitcoin's average gain in the years where the S&P has been up 15% or more? Average gains 1,800%. Bitcoin's best years have all taken place in the years where the S&P has performed very well. I think it's a contrarian opinion, maybe. In this some year's no exception either, too. Like it's uh, markets up at 20% now this year. Yeah, this the is the best year for the S&P since 09, and Bitcoin's having a great year. And I think a lot of people aren't in the Bitcoin circles. A lot of people are maybe contrarian to that view, but the economists and the traditional markets folks that we talked to have a better understanding of what is a flight to safety asset. And it's probably not going to be something like Bitcoin that's hyper volatile. It's going to be U.S. Treasuries. It's going to be gold. Um, maybe that changes five to 10 years from now, but based off the evidence and based off what Bitcoin acts like or how it performs, um, it doesn't really make sense that it would be something that people would use as a hedge. Yeah, and I would say that if what we're observing is correct, this is actually super positive for Bitcoin because Bitcoin does well if mark risky markets are doing well, right? And it makes sense because I would say the logic is, oh, risky markets do well, people want to seek vol, and they buy Bitcoin. Bitcoin. So that explains why Bitcoin does well in up years. But... Bitcoin, if it's digital gold, will also be one of the few places that could be an alternative to gold in a world where people get macro scared. So, you know, if, if what we're saying is correct, this is a more positive scenario because, number one, as you guys know, things got pretty scary in the macro in August. A lot of people were saying, game over, S&P is going to crack. Uh, in fact, that's consensus. People yeah. thought this was the Lehman moment. You had a great line on this that on Good Morning America, they had inverted yield curve segments on Good Morning America. Yeah. <laughs> and like, oh, and everyone's freaking out that the Dow, or, you know, the Dow was down 700 points. Yeah. Quoting comparing the points it, figure. Yeah, comparing it to the financial crisis. It's like, yeah, sure, 700 points when you have a yeah. 22,000 down. Is, but it was a consensus recession consensus, view. Yeah, and as you know, we or an evidence-based research shop. And so we said, look, when the market behaves like this, you have to back up the truck. And, it, and you know, the validation will be the market recovers, which it, which it has. So I, I would say to us, we're still bullish on Bitcoin because we think S&P is going to make new highs. And I have a view about the S&P the next few years, which is quite bullish. It would make us really bullish on Bitcoin. Whereas, of course, if someone thinks it's a macro hedge and this may, makes new highs, their thesis of a Bitcoin as a hedge then suddenly doesn't look great because the S&P is doing fine. Yeah. Now I'd like to thank our phenomenal sponsor, BlockFi. With BlockFi, you can earn interest on your crypto and access the value of your digital assets without selling. The BlockFi interest account offers up to 6.2% APY on Bitcoin and up to 3.3% APY on Ether in a time of low-yielding investments. And it consistently has the best rates in the entire industry. This month, BlockFi dropped their minimums on the crypto interest account. 
you can now start earning up to 6.2% APY on your crypto with any deposit balance. No minimum deposit is required. This means any crypto holder in participating regions can earn interest on their holdings with a BlockFi interest account. Visit BlockFi.com scoop to sign up and start earning interest today. What you talked about before we hopped on, how you're f- afraid of getting a bloody nose on television. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, I guess, I guess. Oh, now that you said it, it's probably going to happen, Frank. So, you know, next time it happens, I'm going to say that. You've been, how many times have you been on TV? Like, can you, do you even, do you even have an estimate of? I, I do not. I do not know. I will tell you my you first like time. You better. Can you say that? <laughs> Well, I'll tell you, my first time on TV was so bad. Uh, so my first appearance I did well was at J.P. Morgan. And um, they, I had just become like the strategist, and they suggested I go on TV. What year was, was this? Uh, this was like 07, maybe 08, okay? And J.P. Morgan has like a camera on the trading floor, so you're not in the studio facing people. And I remember how weird it was when they're like, okay, you're on. And so then all of a sudden, like, okay, wait, what am I staring at? Do I stare at the clock? Do I stare at the camera? They have a little monitor. So like my, I was just like looking all over the place, you know? And they said that, it, and so our media relations was like, oh, Tom, by the way, did you notice that you never looked at the camera all the time? You were just looking at your, uh, your picture of yourself down on the screen. And so <laughs> so beautiful. They yeah. So it was not a it was not a good moment. What were you What were you talking about? Do you remember? Uh, I I, th- I I'm sure at that time it was related to Lehman and the collapse and trying to stem panic. But <laughs> crazy you know. great first interview. Yeah. Yeah. Really throwing you in with the sharks. Yeah. So to speak. What um. I kind of want to jump back to our last train of thought follow-up question so you're calling for S&P to make all new highs this year uh, with it that's a positive tailwind for Bitcoin uh, where does that thesis break down like what, what's the biggest uh, risk to that being realized yeah um, yeah I mean if you had to say okay you know what what kills a stock market um, historically it's it's just two things one is uh, a monetary policy error um, so the Fed has explained the end of every cycle, not because the Fed caused it, it's because the Fed was too easy and inflation got out of control. And that's why when they tighten, the curve inverts because they're they're raising rates on the short end and that's slowing the economy. So I'd say, you know, what has always time and again killed the equity markets, it's not the Fed, but it's policy error because inflation got too strong. And as you guys know, there's like, no inflation <laughs> in the world anywhere. So yeah. I don't think you have to worry about that being a root cause. Um, and the second w- is actually been uh, external shocks. So it could be a commodity spike. It could be war. Uh, it could be a tariff-related shock. Uh, what about this, shock. Tr- this Trump uh, trade war with China? Tit for tat. Yeah. It, uh, so at the moment, nothing that has taken place is in what I in, in my world, I can't tell you the future. Um, I don't think anything that's taken place so far is enough to cause any global recession. And the reason I would say that is um, it's not, these, these numbers aren't big enough yet. So, but listen, 
if you said tomorrow we're implementing 300% tariffs and China's doing bilateral tariffs of the same amount or something, you know, some level, I would say you could definitely create a recession, I mean a depression, but but nothing that has that we've seen to this point even if they were if they were put in place is enough to cause a recession. A lot of the times the things that trigger or serve as the catalyst for an economic downturn are things that, you know, percolate kind of un unknowingly beneath the surface and yes. kind of arise and bite us in the ass before we can even identify it or you know, yeah, until correct. it's too late. So at some point it's almost a question of is it is it even worth stressing ourselves out over thinking about what could be the end that's um, right because I mean, we won't even know yeah i mean we could say we could even list a bunch of things like meteor strike uh alien invasion uh you know u.s somehow splits in half you know what i mean like there's a million things that could happen <laughs> someone fat fingers uh, a launch of a missile i mean there's a million things well, that luckily the someone hacks trump's twitter <laughs> yeah they did it to dorsey I know. yeah it's insane how um so looking back at the business i'd be interested to know uh you know there have been a lot of different trends that i've been looking at when i covered exchanges and um market structure and trading one of the things that was a big topic of discussion was this idea of the unbundling of of different trading services which had not been tied to equity research and now these things were being bundled together thanks to mifid too and there's a lot of questions about how do you price research, um, and it's a it's a difficult business to be in. How has that impacted you as sort of an independent shop? Yeah, um, it's a question it's, that applies for us too. Yeah, it's something yeah. we're trying to figure out as well. Uh, yeah, I mean, re research. It's one of the. It's research has always been a strange business, actually. Um, and the reason it's been strange is when I was at Wharton undergrad. Um, I took some equity research classes, right? Because I was quite interested in, in the field. This is in the 1980, late 80s, early 90s. And pre-internet. There's actually like, yeah, I feel like edge you can get from looking at these companies. Yeah. But, you know, research was not a highly coveted job back then. Be it was actually more of like the not back really office. Coveted now. <laughs> yeah. But it was a back office, uh, you know, <laughs> you know, like you never... You weren't front facing, but I, I was interested because it's like, oh, well, one, you're analyzing companies and plus you, you know, you could talk to CEOs and everything. Right. And um, but then but but it was really in the 90s where IPOs really started to uh, take place, but in a, in a very different way. So, pr you know, pre-1990, most IPOs were actually profitable companies. 90, University of Southern Florida has a lot of data on this. And so you didn't really have to do a lot of work. Um, you know, to value stock. But in the 90s, you know, growth companies, companies that were losing money started to go public. And that's when equity research started to become uh, quite valuable. And I'd say today, um, those research analysts that make a difference are still very highly uh, value capture people. And I think uh, the active management world does reward those uh, that provide uh, that you know, investment variance. The majority of research today, the quality, pr 
you know, I think has slipped uh, because I think budgets have slipped. And so I don't think like, you know, a research analyst today is necessarily as experienced um, or uh, and look, because of rules like from Spitzer and Reg AC, you know, it's the, the edges change. So I think research is a great business if you're a top tier provider of research. Mm-hmm. Can't argue with that. I and mean, you do you really need? Do you need thirty-five people looking at Apple? Yeah. So it it ends up being a pyramid. Yeah, I would say that's. So what you do is like, in, if you're in the research business, you don't want to be average. You want to be uh, top tier, and uh, you know, and it's not linear. You know, it's a pyramid. How do you see automation and and technology impacting that business? Um. It's 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 a virtue and it's a it's a huge problem. I mean, the virtue is like the virtue is it's it it really cleans up information quality. I mean, like you know, in the early '90s, there wasn't like you said the internet, so we had to get order the ten Qs and then in manually input those into the model. And if you were really quick at typing, you were the first to fax out your research report. So your fax There's hit people's desks first. I could see that. Um, and there wasn't voice blast systems back then, so you had to call everybody one at a time, you know? So who was on your 60th on the call list was mad because the, ne- the first guy got the call first. Um, yeah, so that's, uh, that's all, like that, that doesn't add value anymore. But um, as you guys know, information is just noise. You know, judgment uh, really makes sense. And if you guys think, in a world of AI today, you don't need it. Let's just look back in August. All this information that everybody knows, whether it's the curve or whatever, led people to a certain conclusion, and that was not the correct conclusion. So what was the difference? You know, it's not like AI made that decision correctly. Uh, would have, because, you know, it, it would have been a consensus view. It would have been... Well, I mean, based. part of it is the media, right? You have all these scary, flashing red headlines that... that you know, are equating this thing with the end of the world. You couldn't turn off the TV. I mean, like to your point, you know, MSNBC, CNN, CNN, excuse me, inverted yield curve, inverted yield curve, mm-hmm. the biggest recession trigger. You Google, know. The Google search trends for recession, yeah, 4x so that of 08. Yeah, so then if you used a, uh, if you used an AI system, a learning system, it would have told you to get the heck out of the markets, right? Um, I would say uh, AI is going to scare me when it learns to lie. See, I think that's uh, like deception and AI's ability to is, then we don't even need to be human anymore. But I think that uh, today, like the, one of the biggest flaws with AI systems is that they don't ma- make the moral decisions that we can make or what I'd say are, you know, emotions that a combination of either lying or empathy and, and those those are really uh, your advantage. And another advantage, I think, against AI is AI does need a large sample set. So, like, N equals. Like, so if you had to say, you know, what does the learning system need? Like, N equals, you know, 1,000 or 10,000. So, by nature, when, it, when it's directed at a system, it's going to look at a shorter time frame because then you can create a lot of N equals. Um, but if you make a century, a 100-year observation, there's only N equals 3, AI provides you zero edge. And so one of the things that we do at Fundstrat is we tend to look at century-long 
cycles, whether it's demographic or other things that don't have enough N equal that you can actually say, you know, your AI system, learning system would disprove it. Are you guys making any like individual specific calls on any companies out there? Do you have a particular view on some of these big tech companies that, you know, have come to market recently? A lot of them have not really performed all that well. Um, where do you see growth in a market where most of the companies are coming to market far? Very frothy. <laughs> very fr at very frothy valuations, but also very deep into their life cycle as a, as a company. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's definitely an evolution of markets, right? Um, private equity and venture um, have really evolved uh, in the last 10 years. Uh, one, because the, the total AUM is just that much larger. I mean, just so much bigger. And they've had great performance. Um, so they, they've really captured a greater percentage of the institutional allocation to those businesses. You know, alternatives is, you know, 45% of, of some of the large uh, institutional endowments today, probably, you know, single digits before uh, a, a decade ago. And, you know, in a decade ago, venture capital and private equity were really high net worth people allocating. Um, and because they've gotten so big, you know, today there's more companies in a private equity portfolio than there are publicly traded stocks. So the private equity world, company portfolio is arguably the same size as the stock market. That's crazy. And that means if you're private equity, do you want to necessarily release it to the public world where they got K-1s and you can be attacked by shorts, or do you want to create your own exchange? And I think that's why there's even some interest in people creating you know, an alternative exchange where uh, something could stay private forever. I don't think it's a it's a sign of late cycle for the economy. You know, venture started companies and private equity companies don't represent the U.S. economy. They represent a certain profile. You know, Silicon Valley funds, growth, tech, and healthcare, uh, and some other verticals like energy. But if 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 that's mature, it's not the end cycle for the economy. It's just the end cycle for that value capture. And same thing with private equity. You know, today private equity is two trillion of unallocated money. That could buy 10% of the S&P. I mean, it's a lot of cash. And, and that's kind of why I think private equity... just dry powder? Dry powder. Never has private equity had this much money. And McKinsey's wow. latest report showed that. So if you think about it, like, you know, what's the... Take all the entire mutual fund world. What's their cash balance? Maybe maybe it's $50 billion? Private equity is $2 trillion on the sidelines waiting for a pullback in a recession. That's probably why I think... There's a lot of people that want a recession, not because they think we're due. It's just because there's a lot of people who want to take advantage of it. Um, what remains the three top hurdles, in your opinion, for quote-unquote institutional investors looking to get exposure into Bitcoin? Yeah. Um, that's, it's, 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 uh, the best way for me to answer it is there's a mechanical issue for crypto you know in terms of infrastructure that's needed but there's probably also uh, a size of market issue um so let me just maybe start with the simpler stuff i think size of i think crypto is still too small for the institutional world um bitcoin is a 180 billion dollar network value um gold is nine trillion 
the stock market is 66 trillion, the bond market's 86 trillion. Bitcoin is not even half a percent of the total assets. So if you're asking someone to allocate 1% to Bitcoin, which I think is a right, that's like triple the market weighting. You know what I mean? Like you're, you're asking someone to make a massive bet even though it's 1% of their assets because Bitcoin is that small. Um, and you know, like you, I think when people say there's 20 million holders of Bitcoin out there, I think people are overestimating the size. I, I agree. I, I think at most there's a million people that own Bitcoin in the world. And, you know, coin metrics, active addresses show it, it's about a million. But, you know, a simple thing to do is, like, look at Twitter. The most widely followed Twitter account for crypto is John McAfee. He has a million followers. If you take uh, a category like music, the top Twitter personality has 108 million followers. Who's that, Beyonce? No, I actually know this because we just did this for a client. I like that. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> it's Kate Perry. Wow. Wow. So, you know, so that would say that, look, if someone is a teen millennial or whatever that likes Kate Perry, only 1% of those follow Bitcoin. I mean, so I'd say it's probably correct. I think about 1% of the U.S. owns Bitcoin. And at that size, it's too small for an institution. It's a hobby. <clears throat> I think the second issue um, is that Infrastructure doesn't exist, but the root cause of that is that there isn't any regulatory protection for Bitcoin. So even though Bitcoin is uh, legally recognized like in over 100 countries, either as a form method of payment or as legal tender, and it, you know, of course, it actually has uh, some precedent uh, in the U.S., there's not enough legal and regulatory protection for Bitcoin in the U.S. to prevent a White House executive order banning Bitcoin. Like, you know what I mean? Like, nothing today would prevent Bitcoin from being outlawed uh, in the U.S. So I think as a, if I was a bank, um, financial provider in exchange, I think you take, you... You see this lack of regulatory clarity match with yeah, the you, size of the market and think, yeah, well, you, why is it worth it? Yeah, you feel like you have, you have reputational risk because you're extending into a market that has no regulatory protection if the White House decides they don't like it. Um, so I think that uh, you have to let time uh, change because... Look, by the way, if 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 we're correct that only one percent of people own Bitcoin, you know, the price potential is huge because if you double the percentage, so you go to two percent of the world owns Bitcoin, you're going to quadruple the price. And if you look at countries like Asia where ten or twenty percent of adults own it, um, that's a ten x on penetration, which would be a hundred x on price. So I I. I think it's actually a virtue that Bitcoin's as small as it is. What do you think in light of that backdrop of the get off zero movement that it's it's irresponsible if you don't have at least 1% of your your assets allocated to Bitcoin? Does that just seem erroneous? Um, I, I think those people that do take the risk are going to be really rewarded. You know, um, I think the 1% could end up being 100% by just pure price appreciation. Um, and, but, so let's say that's a reward. It does mean that anyone allocating 1% to crypto has to realize it's a hyper-volatile asset that could 
in that path from one to 100 could go to 0.1% of their net worth as well. And so I think that's uh, really the important part of investor education or hodler education. Do you pitch investors to that want that know they want exposure, um, but are looking to like figure out how to best do that? Um, whether that's I guess other funds or, or funds that could be more nimble, do you pitch them on the futures route, purchasing let's say CME futures? Um, I mean, I, you know, suitability is really important. So um, like knowing our clients, you know, so we we have uh, you know. A lot of clients we have clients in 13 countries and every one of them has a different way and in, in terms of how they invest and allocate and the risk tolerance so um, a big part of like what we're doing in terms of just crypto education is really not trying to force feed uh, the traditional world in terms of looking at crypto and but yes I, I would say the majority are not going to be willing to have a cold wallet um, so that they're much more interested in, in other ways to have liquid access in a way that uh, is protecting them from an institutional perspective and reputation. So, you know, I think whether it's through a fund vehicle um, or an ETF or a derivatives product or even futures, you know, those are all valid, but different Different, different solutions different for different clients, yeah. Um, you mentioned crypto, your thesis just having, uh, being that crypto has a, a higher beta to the S&P and that's going up at the end of the year. Um, are there any crypto-specific catalysts you're looking at this year that could uh, contribute? Uh, I mean, there's a lot of things to watch. Um, and they, they all end up really centering around, um, it's really simple, right? Is Bitcoin risk protection protection of regulatory going to improve that's any of those events are catalysts is there things that are going to enable institutional participation those are really valid catalysts um, anything that's going to grow adoption broadly are catalysts so if you think about what do we see in 2019 you know I think Libra is a really important development I know a lot of purists hate it because it's it's not decentralized but I think that's really one of the most important projects out there um the launch of backed which is soon i i think Next that's gonna, yeah i think that's gonna be we should have a backed pizza party <laughs> too bad Frank's I'll be baby. Gone. I'll how be, about back to of, the future yeah. right yeah um look i think that long term that's gonna be very successful i you know i don't know how their launch uh is gonna go i mean i'm not really uh you know i'm not gonna have any views on how it initially launches or how many customers they launch with um and then on the regulatory side, look, I, I'd say that if if someone, if so, if some regulatory developments take place around crypto that were providing protection, I think that would be huge. Are you still bullish on Libra despite you've had, you know, policymakers in Germany, France, many of our own? I mean, I was down at the Senate and congressional hearing, and it was at some moments akin to sinners in the hands of an angry god. I mean, these people hate this company so. much. Many people yeah. hate this company. Do you think it'll get off the ground in spite of those policy and you yeah. know, reputational headwinds? Yeah, I mean, I would say that, you know, the Washington hearings to me uh, really highlighted how tech companies are not as good at lobbying and playing the Washington game as traditional financial companies. You know, I used to cover telecoms, and so I know 
how smart telecom companies were with dealing with state and local and federal regulators and Congress. And I know financial institutions are very savvy. I mean, they have huge armies. And so I think that what we saw in August was really an example of many of those congressmen not being institutionally against Facebook or Libra, but really maybe reminding Facebook and Libra that they have to show that Libra would be good for their district. And so I think in some ways it was a little bit of an entreaty of get involved with our district, uh, help, you know, help us in our district and we'd be glad to be advocates. So I, I think that this was more of a learning moment for Facebook. What about looking at, so looking at Fundstrat's best bets in 2019, you have Facebook, uh, Visa, MasterCard, some companies that could be impacted by a Libra or a Libra-like product. Um, are you thinking about that yet for those individual stocks or um, like impacts to those yeah. thesis that you I mean, have those, those or? Yeah, I, the, the crypto, um, the crypto piece of any traditional equity like say is really a call option because it's not the, it's not going to be the source of intrinsic value or, you know, the, the central thesis for any of these companies, but could it be huge? I mean, like, you know, is Visa a long-term winner in a digital asset world that's supplanting a lot of the bank functions? I think they're huge winners. Um, and, you know, is, is Facebook a long-term winner in a decentralized crypto world? Yeah, I think they're a long-term winner. So I, but it's not central to our thesis. I don't think it, I don't think it should be anyone's thesis, but it's a free call option. Well, I think that's a great place to end the podcast. Tom, Lee, Funstrat, thank you so much for stopping by. Hope to talk to you again soon. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, we'll do a follow-up. Yeah, Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Scoop. We hope you tune in next time. And don't forget to subscribe and favorite wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'd like to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Cash App. Cash App has been the number one finance app on the App Store for almost two years. It was also the first major peer-to-peer -peer payments app to support Bitcoin, and it's still the fastest and easiest way to turn cash into crypto. Cash App now supports Bitcoin deposits in-app, so be sure to move your Bitcoin from whatever wallet you're using to Cash App. Don't have any to deposit? Cash App is also the most convenient way to instantly buy and sell Bitcoin. No more waiting five days for your ACH transfers to come through. With Cash App, you can buy Bitcoin instantly. When you're ready to take full ownership of your private keys, just use Cash App to scan an external wallet's QR code. It's really that simple. Cash App also comes with standard banking features like direct deposits and others your bank would never even consider like Cash Card, a customizable debit card that lets you instantly save every time you use it at Lyft, Whole Foods, and places like Chick-fil-A. Download Cash App today from the App Store or Google Play, and I hope you enjoy the episode.